Psalm 71. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock and refuge, to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have learned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches to the high heavens. You, have, you who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You have, who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp of your, faith, fruit, of your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. Let us go now to 1 Peter chapter 2. And read again verses 1 through 12. 1 Peter 2, verse 1. Peter, writing to Christians living under the new covenant, says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to it, to the preaching of it today. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see that Christ's church is glorious. That is my objective. In this sermon today and in this short sermon series, that is really my ultimate objective. I want you to see that Christ's church is glorious. From an earthly and unbelieving perspective, the church of Jesus Christ does not seem to be glorious. Christ's churches are often small, poor, powerless, and even persecuted in the world. And those who look upon the church with natural and unbelieving eyes will not see her glory, but they will consider her to be weak, insignificant, and even foolish. But those with eyes to see, that is to say, those who can see how things really are with eyes of faith, will perceive that the church of Jesus Christ is, in fact, glorious. The church is glorious because her builder is glorious. And who is the builder of the church except God the Father Himself? He is building His church through Christ the Son and by the Spirit. The church is glorious because her builder is glorious. Two, the church is glorious because her foundation is glorious. And what is the foundation of God's temple church? Is it, not made, it is not made of stone or precious metal. No, Christ Himself is the foundation. He is the cornerstone, and alongside Him are set the apostles and prophets who have testified authoritatively concerning Him. The church is glorious because she has a precious and glorious foundation. Three, the church is glorious because her stones are glorious. And what are the stones of God's temple church? They are not literal stones, but living stones. The stones of God's temple church are people made alive through the hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the working of the Holy Spirit. The stones of God's temple church are those who have believed in Christ. These are those who have aligned with Him. These, by the grace of God and by the working of the Spirit, have faith in Christ and have been washed by His blood. The church is glorious because her stones are glorious. They have been made glorious by the grace of God. These are the living stones who have been made alive by the Spirit. For the church is glorious because her destiny is glorious. The tabernacle and temple of old 
were grand and glorious structures. Indeed, the glory of God did fill them, and indeed they were used by God in a glorious way for a time. But they were designed to pass away. Those earthly structures were designed to give way to Christ. They were designed to give way to His new covenant, His finished work, and His eternal reward. There is no physical or tabernacle or temple under the new covenant. There will be no tabernacle of cloth or temple of stone in the new heavens and earth when Christ returns. Those structures of old will have no purpose there, but God's spiritual temple church is here now, and she will be present in the new heavens and earth too. Christ, our cornerstone, will be there in the new heavens and new earth. The apostles and prophets will be there. And every living stone that God has chosen and called to faith in Christ will be there too. Then the glory of God will fill all, and we will behold His glory. And so I say, the church is glorious, for she is eternal. Her destiny is glorious. The temple church that God the Father is now building through the Son and by the Spirit is eternal, for it will be brought to completion in the new heavens and earth, which is the eternal state. 5. The church is glorious because her purpose is glorious. And that is what I would like to talk about today. The glorious purpose of God's inaugurated temple church. And what is the purpose of the church? Why does she exist? Or better yet, for what reason does she exist? And before we get into the details of that, I hope you can see why this is an important question. Every institution exists for a purpose. And those who wish to understand the institution or to be a part of it in a meaningful way or to see to its flourishing... They had better understand the purpose of the institution, whatever institution it is. For example, a man and a woman would be wise to ask the question, what is the purpose of marriage before entering into the institution of marriage? I would actually argue that a lot of marriage trouble stems from a misunderstanding of what the purpose of marriage is. Our confession actually speaks to the purpose of marriage when it says, marriage was ordained for, do you hear that word there? Here is what it is, for, for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, that is for procreation and the raising up of a godly seed, and the preventing of uncleanness. It's a very simple statement, but it is true and it is helpful. Uh, that is what marriage is for, uh, stated in a very general way. And so, a man and a woman would be wise to ask the question, what is the purpose of marriage before entering into that institution? Similarly, a person would be wise to ask the question, what is the purpose of government before entering into public service? Our confession speaks to the purpose of government with these words. God, the, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under Him, over the people, for His own glory and the public good. 
And to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for defense and encouragement of them that do good and for the punishment of evildoers. I would argue that a great deal of the problems that exist in government would be cleared up if men and women would first ask the question, what is the purpose for this institution? Of course, when I speak of the institutions of marriage and family and of the civil government, I'm speaking of things that have been instituted, that is created, established, set into motion by God. God instituted marriage and the family in the beginning. And God has instituted civil authority. You may see Genesis 9, 5-7 and Romans 13, 1-7 to learn about that. Ultimately, and here is my point, these are not institutions created by man, but they are from God. He is the one who has instituted them. And so it is He, and not we, who has established their purpose. We as His creatures are to receive these institutions and we are to submit to God's design for them as revealed in nature and much more clearly in Holy Scripture. When we ignore God's word concerning His design and purpose for these institutions, we ruin them because we misuse them. We misuse them and in our sin we often misuse them to benefit our own selfish ambitions, our own sinful cravings. Now, the institutions of marriage and the family and of the civil authority are common to all men and women living in all times and places. They are not for Christians only. They are for all people. The leaders of nations and all who live within them ought to be concerned to maintain these common institutions and to encourage their flourishing. They will flourish, as I've said, only when we submit ourselves to God's design for them as revealed in nature and much more clearly in Scripture. But the church is not common to all. No, it is only those who trust in Christ and who are aligned with Him as their foundation who are a part of the church. And the government of the church has not been entrusted to civil authorities. I might ask the question, ought the civil authorities to leave men free to worship God? And ought they even desire to see God worship in their realms? Answer, yes. But they have not been entrusted with church power. No, the church has Christ alone as head and Lord. And He, Christ, has given authority to His churches. In brief, elders are to lovingly rule, lead, shepherd, and oversee. Deacons are to serve, and members are to freely submit to the loving rule of the elders and deacons as they use their various gifts for the building up of the body of Christ in love. More could be said about the power that exists within the church according to Christ's command. But who, I ask you, is head of the church? That is the question that I am really trying to address with you now. Who is head of the of the church? Answer, God is, and He rules His church through Christ. He rules His church through Christ. Listen to our confession on this point. The Lord Jesus Christ is head of the church, in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church, is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Who is Lord of the church? Who is King of the church? 
It is God who rules over his church through Christ. He has given Christ the supreme authority within the church. He is the head of the church. Who is, the, who is building the church? Christ is. Who has instituted the church? Christ has. Who orders and governs the church? Answer, God through Christ the Lord. This might sound basic to you, brothers and sisters, but it's a very important principle, one that has massive implications for us. To state the matter very directly, it is not up to us to decide what the church is. It is not up to us to decide what the church is, how the church ought to function, what its purpose is. No, God has revealed it. He has told us who the only foundation of His church is, Christ the Lord and the apostles and prophets who have testified concerning Him. God has revealed who the stones of His temple church are. They are those that trust in and align with Christ. And He has told us what the purpose of His church is. One, the purpose of His church is to worship God. Two, the purpose of the church is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Much more could be said, I think, about the purpose of the church and all of the things that that, that entails. But I believe that the purpose of the church can be summarized in these two ways. The purpose of the church is to worship God. The purpose of the church is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. I want to consider... The purpose of the church under these two headings. One, the purpose of the church is to worship God. The fact that the church is called God's temple makes it clear that she exists for the purpose of worship. God redeemed Israel from Egypt, remember? He entered into a covenant with them and then He commanded that they build His tabernacle which was a portable temple. Temples are for worship. And so we may say that Israel was redeemed to worship the Lord. This was the purpose for which they were redeemed. They were to worship the Lord. And the same is true for all who have been redeemed by Christ, but in a much greater way. Christ has redeemed His elect from the domain of darkness. He brings them to faith and into the covenant of grace by the preaching of His Word and by the working of His Spirit. He then adds these as living stones to His ever-expanding eternal temple. And I am saying that temples are for worship. You have been redeemed to worship, brothers and sisters. You have been redeemed to worship. This is what Peter says in that passage we read earlier. 1 Peter 2.4 As you come to Him, that is to Christ, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter wants the church to know that this is what they have been redeemed for. They have been redeemed to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So then... Those who come to Christ and receive Him by faith are both being built up into a spiritual house and they become a holy priesthood. And for what purpose, again I say, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What are these sacrifices? 
and what makes them acceptable to God? Let us address the last question first. What makes these sacrifices acceptable to God? One, they are acceptable to God when they are offered up through Jesus Christ, that is to say, through faith in Him and by His mediation. If we wish to worship God in a way that is pleasing to Him, we must come to Him through Jesus Christ, through faith in Christ. That is what our text says. Two, these sacrifices are acceptable to God when they are offered up by the working of the Spirit. That is what spiritual means here in our passage. It does not mean invisible, though it is true that these sacrifices are often invisible, especially when compared to the physical, intangible sacrifices of the Old Testament. But spiritual here does not mean invisible. It means spirit-empowered. Spirit-empowered. The sacrifices that we offer up to God are acceptable when they are, when they are moved along by the Spirit. Remember, you have been made into living stones by the Spirit of God. You have been made into a, a priesthood, spiritually speaking, by the Spirit of God. And so, when we worship the Lord, we must be moved by the Spirit of God and empowered to do so. Three, and this is somewhat related to what has just been mentioned, these sacrifices are acceptable to God when they are offered up to God from the heart. I wonder if you could remember how Cain's sacrifice was rejected while his brother Abel's was received by God. That story is told to us very early in, in Genesis, shortly after the fall of man into sin. We see that uh, the children of Adam and Eve were worshiping the Lord. Uh, they were worshiping the Lord by bringing sacrifices to Him, to altars. Uh, but we are told that Cain's sacrifice was rejected, Abel's was received. And we wonder, why is that? Uh, the rest of the scriptures make it clear that the problem was with Cain's heart. And in fact, we see that his heart was far from God. As proved by his actions, he rose up in jealousy and killed his very own brother. His heart was hard to God. And Hebrews 11.4 says that this was the case. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through faith, though he died, he still speaks. So the writer to the Hebrews says the issue was really the heart. It was really faith. When, when Abel came to worship the Lord, he brought a sacrifice from the heart and with faith in his heart. Faith in the promises, no doubt, that had been declared to his parents, Adam and Eve, concerning the Savior. But Cain was not of faith. He was hard-hearted towards God. And so, if we wish to worship the Lord in a way that is acceptable, we must come and worship the Lord through Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, and from the heart, with faith in our hearts. Do not forget King David's famous words in Psalm 51. We've read them already in our worship service today. The Lord was worshipped by David with these words, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It's a strange way for David to speak. It kind of is jarring. Did God not command that, that offerings, that sacrifices be offered up to him? What do you mean, David, that God does not delight in these things? Well, his point is this, that he delights in them only when they are offered up by faith, by the power of the Spirit, with a heart that desires to worship the Lord, you see. 
Uh, that is David's point. To worship God in an acceptable way is to worship Him, one, through faith in Christ, two, having been made alive by the Spirit, and three, from a heart filled with love and thanksgiving. And what are these sacrifices that we are to offer up now under the new covenant? What are these sacrifices? Not the blood of bulls and goats, not offerings of grain, drink, or incense. No, we are to offer ourselves up to God as living sacrifices, as Paul famously says in Romans 12.1. This means that we are to worship God with all that we are. We are to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to live in obedience to Him in all things. In particular, when God's people assemble, they are to, one, worship the Lord by listening attentively to the Word of God read and preached. We are to receive God's Word by faith. We are to examine ourselves by the light of Scripture. We are to resolve to obey the Scriptures in thought, word, and deed. And so this is one of the the elements of new covenant worship. We are to give ourselves to the Scriptures. We're to listen to it read. We're to listen to it preached. Two, God's people are to worship Him through prayer. Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God by the assistance of the Holy Spirit for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ, believing with the confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. That is Baptist Catechism number 105. And so prayer, along with the reading and preaching of the Scriptures, is an element of new covenant worship. We are to come and we are to pray together as God's people corporately. Three, God's people are to worship Him by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, he says, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. What a wonderful text. That is Colossians 3, 15 through 17. It, it supports much of what has been said already. But notice two things about singing. One, there is a sense in which we sing to one another in the church. Do not forget about that, brothers and sisters. Yes, ultimately our singing is to God. It is an act of worship directed towards Him, no doubt. But there is a sense in which we sing to one another in the church. We sing to one another because we are to sing the Word of God. That is to say, we are to sing the truth of Holy Scripture. And Paul makes mention of that in this text that I have just read from Colossians 3. Notice he exhorts the church to have the Word of Christ dwelling richly among them. In a congregation, it is through the singing of songs that are true to Scripture, that the Word of God dwells richly among them. Uh, to state that better and more precisely, this is one of the ways that the Word of God dwells richly among us, is when we sing Scripture. The Scriptures are to be read, they are to be preached, and when we sing, we are to sing the truth of Holy Scripture. To God, yes, but also to one another. And in this way, the congregation encourages one another. Two, there is a sense in which singing in the church is prayer. 
For when we sing to God the Father through faith in Christ the Son and by the Holy Spirit, uh, we are in fact lifting our voices to God in, in prayer. I wonder if you have ever thought of our singing in this way. When we sing, we encourage one another with the word. And when we sing, we in fact pray to God in unity in a melodious and harmonious way. Singing is an element of new covenant worship. When we sing, we are to sing the scriptures. When we sing, we are to sing as if it were prayers being offered up to God the Father in unison as God's people. For God's people are to worship Him by observing the sacraments or ordinances that Christ has given to the church. There are two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper ought to be observed weekly, in our opinion. You may go to Luke 24, 35, Acts 2, 42, Acts 20, verse 7, etc., uh, to see arguments for this. Uh, Baptism ought to be administered whenever the Lord blesses us with an opportunity. But the simple point is this. The administration of baptism and the observance of the Lord's Supper are elements of New Covenant worship. The Old Covenant had its elements for worship. Worship at the temple there was very complex. The sacrificial system was a part of it. The priesthood was very much involved. Old Covenant worship was visible and tangible. It was very complex. The Old Covenant had its elements for worship. And the New Covenant has its elements too. Our confession also speaks to this in chapter 22, paragraph 5 when it says, The reading of the Scriptures, preaching and hearing the Word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, are all parts of religious worship, the religious worship of God, to be performed in obedience to Him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. It's a wonderful statement there. Uh, Brothers and sisters, these are all elements of our corporate worship together. You have been redeemed to worship, brothers and sisters. You have been redeemed to worship. If it were not the case, then why would the church be called temple? You have been redeemed to worship. You have been set as living stones upon other living stones, which are all ultimately set upon the foundation, which is Christ, the apostles, and the prophets. And as God's temple, and also as God's priesthood, you are to worship the Lord. And yes, it is true that we are to worship God always, and with all that we are, as individuals privately, in families, and also as we go about our lives in society. But here in this sermon, our concern is the corporate, God has not redeemed you to worship merely as an individual, nor merely as a family, but corporately, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Again, I say to you, if this were not the case, then why would God call His church His temple and insist that you all individually are stones, living stones in this temple? Corporate worship, brothers and sisters, is an essential part of the Christian life. This is why the Scriptures warn against neglecting the assembly. This is why so much ink is spilled in the New Testament concerning the church. I've heard it said before that the New Testament is a church book. It's 
throughout the New Testament, this theme of church. Church permeates everything. And this is why, again, the church is described in corporate terms. The church is God's kingdom. The church is God's flock. The church is God's temple. You, brothers and sisters, are the living stones. You were redeemed to worship. The second purpose of the church is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. I've not left myself much time to elaborate on this point. Uh, Lord willing, we'll return to this idea in a sermon in the not-too-distant future. By the way, I told you in an earlier sermon that I thought the series would involve five. I think it's up to seven now in my mind because this, this is such an important subject and its importance is it's just growing and growing in my mind. And so we will come back to this idea that the church is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous not light. Uh, for now, I simply want to acknowledge that this is what Peter says. In 2.9, again, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Uh, notice, notice the corporate emphasis here. You are a chosen race, not a literal race, but, but you are God's chosen people called from every tongue, tribe, and nation. You are a royal priesthood, not literally priests, but redeemed by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit to offer up sacrifices to God. A holy nation, not a nation um, confined by geographical boundaries with an earthly king, but but a nation with God Himself as King. You are a people. You are, not, you are not people individually, merely, but you are a people for His own possession. And here is that very important word, that. We might say, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Here, here is your purpose, church. The purpose of the church is to worship, and the purpose of the church, closely connected to this, is also to proclaim. The church must proclaim. To proclaim is to declare something or to announce something. To proclaim is to publish something abroad. And what is the church to proclaim? Answer, the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. What is meant by excellencies? Well, one who is excellent is great, glorious, good, and praiseworthy. And who is this excellent one that Peter refers to? It is God. The purpose of the church is to worship, and the purpose of the church is to proclaim, to announce, to publish the excellencies of God. In particular, we are to proclaim the excellencies of of the work that the Father has done through Christ His Son and by His Spirit to call us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. This is what the church is to do. We are to worship and we are to proclaim the excellencies of God and the redemption that He has accomplished for us through Christ the Son and the application of that redemption by the Spirit, the triune God, and all of His glory is to be proclaimed by us. And to whom is this proclamation to be made? Well, we are to proclaim the excellencies of God the Father, and the redemption He has accomplished through His Son and applied by His Spirit, to one another, to our children, to those who do not yet believe, who are in our midst, 
to our friends, family, and neighbors, and even to the ends of the earth. We are to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light to everyone. It must happen here. Lord's Day by Lord's Day, the excellencies of God are to be announced, proclaimed, magnified, so that we together might be built up in Christ, so that our children might come to see that God is excellent, that God is worthy of all praise. We're to evangelize our friends, families, and neighbors. We are to do this faithfully, brothers and sisters, by announcing how good and glorious our God is, how worthy of our praise He is, especially how good and glorious this redemption that He has accomplished for us is. And this proclamation is to go to the very ends of the earth. Those who are in Christ have been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. And we are to be a light in the darkness, therefore, as Paul says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Brothers and sisters, how often do you talk about the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light? I hope it is often. I think we need to be mindful of this, especially when we are together on the Lord's Day. There's nothing wrong with chit-chat. I'm not criticizing that. There's nothing wrong with talking about things that are common to life, um, maybe struggles that we are experiencing. That's an important part of Christian fellowship, to talk about the things of life together. I agree with that. We should do that when we are together. But we should also be mindful of exalting the Lord, of saying to one another, you know, I read this in Scripture the other day. Isn't our God good? Isn't He glorious? Do not forget that He is faithful. Isn't it wonderful to know Him? Isn't it good for us to worship the Lord? We ought to spur one another along in these things, brothers and sisters. Do you agree with me in this? He should be a part of our conversation. We should be exalting God always with our speech. We need to do the very same thing in our homes. We need to talk often of the excellencies of God and of Christ and of the working of the Holy Spirit. We should even do this as often as we have opportunity with those who do not yet believe. We must proclaim the goodness of God, His grace and mercy shown to us in Christ Jesus. And we must urge people to come, to turn from their sins and to believe upon this Savior that God has provided for us. He is the foundation of God's eternal temple. He is the only foundation that is to be had. And so we had better build our lives upon Him. And so we must urge men and women to turn from their sins and to believe upon Christ. You know, I began this sermon by saying, I want you to see that Christ's church is glorious. In order to see her glory and her beauty, you will need eyes of faith. I am convinced that natural eyes will not do As I was getting ready for church this morning, I was reflecting upon the sermon I had prepared. And I think also the experience I had yesterday with our association kind of pressed this upon me as well. As I assembled together in an upper room, doesn't that sound spiritual? You know, it was, though. It's an upper room um, up above the main sanctuary of this very small and rather humble church building in the middle of. LA. You know, I I looked around the room and I thought, a lot of people would scoff at this. A lot of people would look at this and say, 
This is weak. There's no power here. This is so thoroughly unimpressive. In fact, look at this building. It's really dated. The room is pretty small. I don't think there's air conditioning in it or anything like that, you know. Look at these men. They're just common men gathered together from all over Southern California. Um, Not a lot of money represented in the group, you know. No political power whatsoever that I know of, etc., etc. You understand? For for a non-believer to come in with natural eyes and to look upon what we were doing there, messengers assembling from all these local congregations spread across Southern California, they probably would just kind of sneer at it. But as I looked across that room, I thought, this is glorious. This is glorious what God is doing. And I thought of our local congregation, and I thought of all of the local congregations represented by those men who are in in the room. And most of them are, in fact, all of them are, are very small and humble churches. And I thought, these are glorious congregations because these churches are true. They're true churches that God is building. These churches have Christ and the apostles and prophets as their foundation. These churches consist of those made alive by God's Spirit, living stones. And the purpose of these churches is glorious too. These churches exist to worship God and to proclaim the excellencies of God, the one who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. This is a glorious thing. And then I thought also of the destiny of these churches and those who are truly members of them. The destiny is eternal. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ that we will dwell with for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth where all is temple and the glory of God fills all. It's just marvelous to consider. Brothers and sisters, I, this morning as I reflected upon all of this, I thought this, this little mini-sermon series is, is very important for all of us. And it's, it's important for me because I think I experienced a bit of a transformation myself as a Christian man 10 or 11, 12 years ago. Never was I very impressed, to be honest with you, with the big megachurch thing and the complex programs. It was always off-putting to me, but I did kind of live in that world where if I were to be honest, I probably would have looked at churches like ours and churches like the ones that were represented in that room yesterday, and I probably would have disregarded them a bit. I probably would have dismissed them as insignificant, but things changed for me. My perspective changed. All of a sudden I began to see that, you know what, this is what's glorious indeed. These true churches that have sound doctrine, that, that, that are just not only true but, but healthy also, this is the impressive thing. And, I, and I, I almost don't know how to impart it to you. Some of you I know have experienced the same sort of transformation. You, you've, you've walked the same road that I have, and so you get it. I guess a part of me wants to say this to our young people, you know, who've been brought up in this church. This is all that they know. It's almost hard to put into words, but I do pray that the Lord would give all of you eyes of faith as it pertains to the beauty and the glory of Christ's church. I pray that for our young people too, that as they are brought up in this very humble and small church, um, that they would see it as precious. Not because it is impressive according to the world's estimation or the world's eyes, but it is precious because this is God's work. This is His church. And we need to see with eyes of faith, brothers and sisters. I pray that God would give you eyes to see the church, that the church is glorious. Again, 
Because her builder is glorious, her stones are glorious, her destiny is glorious, her purpose is glorious. And I pray that God would give you the wisdom to see that the glory of Christ's church is not superficial. The glory of Christ's church is not superficial. It is spiritual and it is substantial. There are many counterfeit churches, brothers and sisters, that for one reason or another appear to be glorious on the surface. But if its builder is not God, if its foundation is not Christ, if its stones are not living stones made alive by God's Word and Spirit, if its purpose is not worship and the proclamation of the excellencies of God and Christ, then its destiny is not eternal either, but instead eternal condemnation. Christ's church is glorious to the extent that she possesses these characteristics, qualities, and purposes. She is glorious to the extent that she trusts in Christ, submits to God and His Word, and lives for His glory. And may the Lord help us to think with clarity concerning the church. And may we grow to love her more and more. Indeed, Christ has loved the church, and He has given His life up for her. See Ephesians 5, 25 and following. May we love the church because we love our Savior and all that He loves. May we love the church because we love our God who has indeed called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. May He receive all glory, honor, and praise. Let's bow together. Our Father in heaven, we are often busied with many things and troubled by many things in this world. You, Lord, know the troubles of this life because you yourself became incarnate to redeem us, and so you can sympathize with our weaknesses. I pray that you would help us to live in this world, to not withdraw from it, but to live in this world as your people, with eyes of faith. Help us to see, O God, as you see. Help us to focus our minds and hearts on those things which are of eternal worth, I pray your blessing upon this congregation. Bless us corporately, O Lord. Bless us individually, each one, and as families. May we worship and serve you always, O Lord. Above all else, we pray that you would be highly exalted, that we would acknowledge you to be the excellent one, worthy of all praise. In the name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Savior, we pray. Amen.